This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Economic Update, The Young Turks, Democracy Now!, Radio Dispatch, The Hunting Ground, The Perfect Victim, and Brooke Axtell. So could you begin by giving us a kind of an overview of what has happened to personal relationships, let's call it, in the last 30 to 40 years? So I want to set this up to, to look at what has happened as the personal fallout from the desertion of U.S. workers and the export of U.S. jobs overseas, as well as their replacement with computers. Because what happened in the 70s is that computers replaced millions of jobs and multinational communication systems enabled multinational corporations overseas to function without ecological restraints, without workers' rights, and with much lower salaries. So that, and what happened economically, which had huge impact personally, was that Americans were lulled into a sense that we were an exceptional people, particularly white Americans, since African Americans and minorities were eliminated from the American dream. But during the 70s, the majority of Americans were white, and that's changing. So for 150 years, from 1820 to 1970, wages and profits rose together. White male workers got extra bonuses, one for being white, one for being male, and got higher wages, in fact called family wages, wages that could support a family. Well, that ended in the 1970s, and white men were disempowered. The whole family system, which was the traditional family of the wage-earning white male and the dependent wives and children was no longer tenable. In other words, we had built up a family in America of a man working and the wife, at least in the white part of the population. Which was the majority at the based time. Based on this system of rising wages. Right. And so a kind of catastrophe happens when, when the wages stop rising right. since the 70s. And now the question is, what happens to a family based on a rising wage when that's not available? Well, families depended on women's unpaid labor. Their emotional labor and tying the family together, and connecting them with relatives and friends and taking care of children. Their domestic labor in terms of cooking and cleaning and shopping. And their um, sexual labor. Women were responsible. Well... And white men counted on women working full-time to provide these goods in and the services home. for them in their individual homes. Right. Well, before the 1970s, women's labor was reserved for disasters. Men were hurt. Men were fired. You know, they were unemployed. They were hurt. They deserted their families. And so that women were forced into the labor force. Before that, women could be counted on to be home. And what that meant is even in those cases where women were in the labor force, the other neighboring women were at home looking out and could look out after your kids. 
So once women's labor was needed to just Wait make minute, ends step meet. By state. So you're saying when the men's wages didn't go up anymore, that's when the movement of women... That's when women had to go out en masse. And there was no extra in case of debt, in case of layoff, in case of injury. That left, that extra little supplement was over. Elizabeth Warren and Tayagi wrote a good book about that. That's the same one as the senator. So I want to just establish this. So after the 1970s, with the end of the rising wage... The family becomes precarious economically unless the woman goes out and works. And when she goes out and works, they're precarious because in case of some problem, she can't go out to work. She's already working to keep the family going, period. There is no reserve. So there's no slack there's the no way there slack. once was. Everything is more precarious. Okay. Women's labor force participation, women leaving for jobs, tripled after 1970. That's huge. And the effect on families in the light of these capitalist profit decisions was enormous. And at the same time, as women were pouring into the labor force, families were transformed. We didn't have the kind of support for families that would have made that transition possible. There's less child care, federally supported quality child care provided by our government now than was during World War II where it paid them because they needed women in the munitions factories. So that not only are families deserted, but the basic conditions that would have allowed those families to adjust, like they have in other countries, like universal, excellent child care that starts out to be free at three years old and is heavily subsidized before that. Meals, after-school activities, maternity and paternity leaves, guaranteed vacations that allow families to spend time together. We don't have that, and we are the, the least developed in the Western industrialized and wealthy world on all of those things. So that this was a disaster. In addition to that happening, the recession starting in 2008 had its biggest effect on male jobs, which just accentuated that. Four-fifths of the jobs lost in 2008 were male jobs in construction, and these were jobs men didn't need an education for. Construction, producing heavy machinery, manufacturing, high-power sales, which needed a kind of male testosterone-infused aggression, and uh, the biggest growth was in the service economy which is much more geared to women. The biggest growth areas now are in food services and medical technology and medical assistance. Those were traditionally female jobs. In addition, the jobs that pay better require an education. Education and higher education were not a particular priority in blue-collar male culture. And because of that, men have also really taken a shellacking. The majority of people in higher education, the whole of higher education, not every single field, but the totality, are women. In college, women. In master's degree programs, women. In doctoral programs, women. And so that men have lost out in terms of their cultural expectation that they could get a decent job and support a family without an education. So let me summarize. 
between the 1970s and the collapse of 2007, the problem begins to be that the traditional family can't survive economically. Right. And then it gets another chop in the neck with the recession. Right. In the first phase, in a sense we might say, men have to become accustomed, with whatever difficulty, to the wife being no longer someone that they can works support at home. Right. They can't do that. They might have thought that's what their social role, but they can't do it. And then, with the crash of 2008, the added problem that they can't hold their job at all. That's right. And the jobs that are available are being picked up by women who have more of a job possibility in the midst of their losing. This is a heavy one-two punch in a 30 or 40 year period. A very heavy one-two punch. So, so let, let me push you. Where does that, how does that play out? What, well, let what, me tell you, good. that's just what I was going to say. It's beautifully stated in a wonderful film by Maggie Baird called Life Inside Out. And it's a story of a family. And the man at one point says to the woman, we've never done this badly, even when we started out. I don't feel like a man at all. And now you have to go out and work at a job that you don't like. I feel like a failure. The man says that. Yes. And all over the United States... This has happened. Men who identified their manhood with being, I am a man, I am a provider, a luxury not afforded to black males, was gone. And so that, you know, men were unmanned in their own eyes. And this was a terrible blow. A good illustration is that in 1970, only 4% of U.S. wives out-earned their husbands. They earned more money than their husbands. In 19, I mean, in 2012, one out of three wives earns more money than her husband. So we're talking about a basic sea a change. Huge sea change, and there are different reactions to this. Naturally, the government does not want to acknowledge capitalism's role, and. In league with that denial are the hate radio mavens. Bill O'Reilly, Rush Limbaugh. On Rush Limbaugh, I've heard a man calling in saying, I'm confused, I don't feel like a guy, my wife earns more, and Rush Limbaugh says, that's because she's a feminazi. These women are taking over everything. There, you know, and he goes on an anti-woman rant. And Bill O'Reilly has the same idea, that it's the reason you're in trouble, of course, has nothing to do with capitalism. He doesn't even mention the word. But the reason you're in trouble is those immigrants are taking your job, the upstart women who are words, not respectful, the African-Americans, they're taking your jobs. In other words, no recognition of the move of companies abroad, no recognition of what profit decision means when a corporation does it, how these jobs, none of what you've told us about is the economics is ignored. Instead, no. it's the act, you blame the immigrant you scapegoat for, other for, people. And you scapegoat the women, the women particularly. For wrecking your, because you know, they're your getting, wife did it. She yeah. wrecked your personal life. Just shows these upstart women leaving you alone and you're so great and they're terrible, they're feminazis, you know, we got to stop this. And well, so it is, But it is true, right, that one of the pressure points since the 1970s as families have had to navigate this 
changed priority of profit industry has been a, the growth in the divorce rate, the inability of families to stay together as these pressures overwhelm or exaggerate whatever other differences Absolutely. were. Absolutely, and the more these are exaggerated, like in the red states and in religious states, the higher the divorce rate. So that we can see that these contradictions are accentuated where the ideology is, there's nothing wrong with capitalism, there's something wrong with uppity women, and so on. And so that there have been several refuges that men have sought to both deny capitalism and recoup their traditional manhood, which depended on domination of women and economic dominance for themselves. And without the economic dominance, holding on to the dominance nonetheless, the Mm -hmm. men's rights. Men's rights movements are part of that. I'll talk about that later. That's what the question came in. Yes, indeed. A very big one is the Christian right, because the... um, Southern Convention, Baptist Convention on Men and Women dictates that women should be subordinate to their men who should be protective, but in charge. regardless of who earns more, men are in charge. And that's that cry is carried on by the Catholic Church, both with its discrimination against women not being able to be leaders in the church and priests, and also in their dictate that women are to be in charge of hearth and home rather than share, right. you know, and men are dominant. And the same thing is true with Orthodox Judaism, Hasidic religions, and the Muslim tradition yeah. in its orthodoxy. So that, and the NRA is another big one, which where they very successfully, instead of saying buy a gun, the gun lobbies will love it and they'll make more money. It's you're defending your second. Amendment rights as a man. And just as a little ironic statement, the Second Amendment was added for the slaveholding states so that they could form militias to hunt down escaped slaves. So it doesn't have a great tradition in the first place, but it's a very male-dominant. Shoot them. They have a ex-girlfriend target that you can shoot. It spurts blood all over her until she's utterly demolished. So you can argument, order that online. So your argument is that... that Men found their way into these, these kinds of movements. Men who want to deny capitalism's role and assert their dominance rather than seeing this as a chance to be equals and friends and to learn how to take care of vulnerable beings, to be cooperative, to be egalitarian, to have a household co-op and a chance for depth of friendship and connection who want to assert their dominance and deny that capitalism has removed it gravitate towards these places. A military is another one, which is why women are routinely raped in the military and they can't solve the problem.
new report indicates that reports of sexual assaults in the military have increased about 8% in 2014. But that might actually be good news because people feel comfortable enough to come forward when they are victims of sexual assault or rape. So let me give you the numbers. There are about 6,000 victims of reported assault in 2014. Compare that with just over 5,500 last year. Now, they have changed the way that these reports work. So that's another element to this, okay? So before, if you were one person who faced multiple instances of sexual assault, they would consider that one report. Now they take into account all the separate instances where you have been sexually assaulted, right? So each victim counts for one report, uh, but they also count every single you know, little instance that they've faced uh, as a result of being in the military. So based on those numbers and the anonymous survey conducted by the RAND Corporation, officials said that about one in every four victims filed a report this year, in sharp contrast to 2012 when only one in every ten military victims came forward. So again, even though the numbers are higher, this actually ends up being good news because it shows more people are just coming forward. So think about that. I found that to be the most amazing part of this, right? So three out of four people get away with it. You know, because of intimidation, commanding officer, you name it. There's a number of reasons, right? And that's depressing mm -hmm. that only one out of four come forward. But just two years ago, it, only one out of ten came forward. Nine out of ten times you sexually assault someone, totally get away with it. And the reason why that would happen was because there would be retaliation against the people that would report it. So if you are, you know, in the military, you have to, per you have to report to the person who's higher in the chain of command, right? And usually that person is looking out for the members of the military. And it's a dude who doesn't want to help you out. Let's just keep it that way, or say, put it that way. Yeah, and if that means we have 6,000 reported victims now, it is likely, and the RAND Corporation is nobody's liberal, okay? Mm -hmm. it's, I mean, they, they're actually trying to figure out what actually happened here, as is the military. Uh, that means that there were probably actually 24,000 victims and only 6,000 reported. Mm -hmm. So this is a much bigger uh, problem than, uh, than we even realize. Absolutely. So let me give you the details on how many people have anonymously reported uh, that they've been sexually assaulted in the military. These are not people who reported it, okay? Two years ago, the anonymous survey conducted uh, by the Defense Department found that about 26,000 service members said that they had been the victim of unwanted sexual contact. That does not mean that all those people had been raped. It's just unwanted sexual contact, okay? Uh, this year, the number dropped to about 19,000, including about 10,500 men and 8,500 women, which officials said suggested there was a trend of sexual assaults declining, okay? So it went from 26,000 to 19,000. So you're, you're seeing uh, that amazing fact, which is that actually more men are sexually assaulted or have unwanted sexual contact than women. In the military. In the military. Now, obviously, there's a lot more men in the military than there are women, so that's obviously an enormous factor. But it's not often uh, acknowledged. It's not something that people talk about a lot. So when you talk about sexual assault in the military, all people assume that it's always uh, an issue that is revolving around women and, and they are disempowered, etc. No, no, it's also about men. In fact, it's more so about men who are victims, mm -hmm. right? And they also are afraid to come out because of the same exact issues, chain of command, um, intimidated, uh, degraded, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I remember when this story first came out in 2012, it was a difficult story to talk about. A lot of people didn't want to hear about it. A lot of people denied that it was even happening, which is so stupid, right? Why would you 
pretend like you got raped in the military. But it's important to report on those things because now people who have been victimized feel comfortable coming out and reporting this, and they feel like there might be some justice in this case. Now, here's the biggest issue. The military still hasn't, or I should say the government, still hasn't changed the way that these rapes get reported. Okay, so people are still worried about retaliation if they do report instances of sexual assault. Now, they're still trying to work on figuring that out, but, I mean, let's, let's hurry that process up a little bit. It's been years now. Exactly, and there's strength in numbers. So the more people that come out, the more likely it is that uh, there will actually be something done about it. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. Well, here at the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah, a groundbreaking new film has premiered that deals with the issue of sexual assault on college campuses and shows just how rare criminal convictions like the ones at Vanderbilt are. The Hunting Ground was created by Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering, makers of the 2012 Oscar-nominated documentary The Invisible War. This is the trailer for their latest film, Hunting Ground. I got a call from the dean of admissions asking if you were to get into Harvard, would you accept? And I said yes, because I knew my mom would kill me if I said anything else. <laughs> the first few weeks, I made some of my best friends, but two of us were sexually assaulted before classes had even started. I went to the dean of students' office, and she said, I just want to make sure that you don't talk to anyone about this. They protect perpetrators because they have a financial incentive to do so. The problem of sexual assault on campuses is enormous. I think it's fair to say that they cover these crimes up. There's a lot of victim blaming. He lectured us about how we shouldn't go out in short skirts. They told me despite the fact that I had a written admission of guilt that I presented to them could only prove that he loved me. They discourage them from going to the police. If it goes to the police, then it's more likely to end up as a public record. Universities are protecting a brand. The campus police cannot contact an athlete. He won the Heisman Trophy with his DNA rape kit. Just sit down with the students and ask them, where are the hot spots? SAE, sexual assault expected. The second most common type of insurance claim against the fraternity industry is for rape. Her rapist's name matched the name of two other cases, and he was allowed back on campus. The message is clear, you're not going to win. We started seeing, you know, what was happening at campuses across the country. Hi. Hi. Has no one connected the dots before? These students went from sexual assault victims to survivors and now activists. My name is Carolyn Luby. My name is Alexa Schwartz. My name is Ari Mostov. This is a national problem. We are 
I was getting threatened. It was working in their favor to silence me. I was terrified. I thought if I told them, they would take action, but the only action they took was against me. We've got a lot further to go. That's the trailer for Hunting the Hunting Ground. Just after we arrived here in Park City, I sat down with the filmmakers, Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering. Their 2012 film, The Invisible War, exposed the issue of sexual assault in the military, prompting changes in policy. That issue remains in the spotlight. As just this week, a former Army prosecutor who oversaw sexual assault cases was found guilty of rape. Major Eric Burris was court-martialed and sentenced to 20 years in prison. I began by asking Amy Ziering, producer of The Hunting Ground, why she and Kirby Dick decided to make a film on campus rape. We weren't anticipating making another film in this same area, but every time we showed Invisible War on campuses, Amy, someone came up to us and said, actually, this happened to me here, and there's a lot of analogies between what you're pointing out going on in the military going on at my school. And Kirby would find that as well at, every, at almost every screening on, on, at different universities across the country. And then we started getting letters in our inboxes. Dear Miss Ziering, dear Mr. Dick, will you please make a film on campus assaults? This happened to me at X University. And we actually were working on a very different project. Um, and uh, we just looked at each other and said, we cannot not make this film. I mean, we were shocked that this is going on. And we felt like, well, actually, we understand these issues. We know how to make this kind of film. And we felt compelled to do it. Amy, I went to one of your premieres here at Sundance, and the response afterwards was overwhelming. You were besieged. I watched one woman come up to you and say, it happened to my daughter. No, that happens, yeah, with this film also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and also mothers come up and said, it happened to me 30 years ago at Dartmouth. I've gotten that a lot. It happened to me 30 years ago, and thank you for doing this. I, I couldn't speak then. Kirby, this film is not only about people who've been deeply hurt, you know, sexually assaulted, raped. It's about women who are organizing right now all over the country. And it's led by two women from the University of North Carolina. Both of them were raped, um, Annie Clark and Andrea Pino. They are remarkable. It happened to them several years apart from each other, but they found each other. They're now traveling the country, helping victims um, at universities file Title IX anti-discrimination complaints uh, to the Department of Education. Um, they were raped early on in their college careers? Yes, both of them were, I think, assaulted within the first or second year that they were there, yes. And then and Andrea had found out about uh, Annie Clark's earlier activism three or four years ago and reached out, and they formed this bond, and then they started... They, you know, Annie was appalled that this was still going on, and so the two of them decided to, to really do something. And the first thing they did was start to investigate and how to file a Title IX complaint. And so they, without any attorneys, uh, wrote and, and filed a complaint against the school, which was accepted by the Department of Education. One of the most galling parts of this film, Amy, is um, how administrations respond or don't respond. I mean, you have Annie Clark, now one of the organizers of a major anti-rape movement in this country. When she was raped and went to the University of North Carolina administration, one of the officials said, it's like a football game. What is like a football game? Rape is like football. You have yeah. to think back on what you would have done differently, just like you would in any play in any game. That was what she said the administrator had said to her. This is what was so uh, appalling is, is, you know, we in interviewed um, on camera over 60 women and, and, and men. And uh, we were over and over and over. You would hear, hear the stories of these women who were assaulted. And that was profoundly 
uh, uh, you know, it, it was traumatizing to them, but they trusted their school. They went to their school. They had the courage to come forward to talk about it, and they trusted that their school would do the right thing. And in so many cases, you heard this form of victim blaming, like it was your fault, like you drank too much, you were, you were dressed too provocatively. And it was just from across the board, whether it's Ivy League schools, Southern schools, small liberal arts colleges, it was, it was shocking. Amy, can you talk about some of the examples of some of the punishments that are meted out to students? You know, rarely are they found responsible, but in the cases that they are? No, the punishments are ridiculous. One was like a $70, $75 fine, a $25 fine, a book report, um, a poster board on 10 ways to approach a girl you like. Um, what was it at another school? Well, it was 50 hours of community service at a rape crisis center. Perpetrator is told to serve at a rape crisis center? Yes, yes, which is just the most absurd. <laughs> Kirby, you have these full screens in the film uh, that show statistics. The number of people who complain on campuses of rape or sexual assault, and of course this is very small compared to how many are actually raped or assaulted, but those numbers compared to how many people are expelled. And in, at university after university, you see on the screen a big fat zero. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, this is what was so shocking is that these schools, I mean, we know that the assaults are going on in each of these schools in the hundreds of times a year, perhaps even thousands of times a year at these schools, and yet no one is getting expelled year after year after year. I, um, you know, a University of Virginia, for example, you know, well over 200 assaults over a period of time that people have reported. These are only the reported assaults, keep in mind. No one was expelled during that time. There's something else that's very profound in this film. You come to understand universities all too often want to protect their brand more than the victim. Um, that they don't want to report these assaults. They don't want to expel people. And yet when it comes to what is called honor crimes like plagiarism, they expel scores of people. Explain. I mean, one of the unfortunate things is there's very little transparency on, on this issue across the camp and across the country. So it's very hard to even get these numbers. We were fortunate to get these numbers from the University of Virginia, who had not expelled anyone over a, you know, a multi-year period, yet they had expelled, I think, nearly 200 people for other, much more minor uh, infractions like plagiarism. So that really tells you a lot about the priorities of the school and about you know, the fact that protecting their students is not the number one priority. In The Hunting Ground, you interview people at every level. Look, women or men who've been sexually assaulted. You also have a rapist who's come out of jail, his face fogged. Explain his story. Well, what he had to say was that, uh, I mean, one of the things, you know, our film shows is just like in the military, uh, it, it, this, these crimes are committed by a small number of men, a small percentage of men. It's, most men are not rapists. Most men in athlete, you know, most athletes are not rapists. Most men in fraternities are not rapists. But it's a small percentage of men who are committing these crimes and committing them over and over. So, so uh, repeat offenders really are the core of this problem. So we were able to interview one, and, and he talked about the M.O. of a repeat offender, which is, you know, to pick out someone who seems, uh, you know, doesn't seem to have friends around them, who is getting drunk, who feels safe in a college environment, and then befriend them. And he said it's something that, uh, you know, can be done again and again. And he, and he actually did say if they're not caught, the likelihood 
of them repeating is, in his words, nearly 100%. And if I can add, it was based on all that research and our knowledge that we wanted to name the film The Hunting Ground and show that it's actually a calculated, premeditated act. It is not bad, you know, it's not a hookup gone bad, it's not he said, she said, it's not all the things that people intuitively think is what's going on, oh, we, we can't do anything about it, kids drink, what you going to do? It's actually not, you know, and that I think is really shocking and revelatory and what people need to need know and understand. You interview a campus police officer at the University of Notre Dame who would ultimately resign because he felt he was thwarted from conducting investigations into allegations of sexual assault. He said that the campus police were not allowed to approach any student athlete or an employee of an athletic facility or department to find out where an athlete might be. So that's what the problem is. It's not that, you know, athletes are rapists. It's the problem is we have a broken system that allows them to commit these crimes without any kind of repercussions. Yeah, right? They're protected. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And it's, it's, and that's really what we want to come across is it's a hunting ground. It's a place where people are not safe, not because there's a preponderance of perpetrators, but because there's nothing in place to prosecute those people. And there's no incentive to do so. Kirby Dick, the statistics are astounding. Uh, when you talk about 16 to 20 percent of undergraduate women have been sexually assaulted on college campuses across the country, you say 88 percent of women raped on college campuses do not report, 88%. Um, in 2012, 40% of colleges reported zero sexual assaults, and less than 8% of men commit more than 90% of the assaults. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, it's astonishing. Again, this, of course, the last figure goes back to the fact that these are repeat offenders, that, uh, uh, you know, this is not drunk hook, hookups, he said, she said. This is really another way to refer to it is target rape, that these are, are men who do this again and again and get better at it each time. In September, we spoke to Emma Sulkowitz, who's also featured in The Hunting Ground. Emma Sulkowitz is the Columbia University student who says she was raped by a fellow student. After she reported her assault to Columbia, she had to go before a disciplinary panel where she was forced to explain to a university official how the painful manner in which she had been raped was physically possible. Then the panel found that the accused assailant was not responsible. Two other women also came forward with complaints against the same student. So in protest, Emma Sokowitz vowed to carry a dorm mattress around with her everywhere on campus until the student is either expelled or leaves on his own. So on Democracy Now!, she explained why she chose this form of protest. I was raped in my own bed. Um, and, of course, rape can happen anywhere. But for me, it sort of desecrated one of the most intimate and private places of my life. Um, and the way that I've brought my story from a place that I keep secret out into the public eye sort of mirrors carrying the mattress itself out into the light for everyone to see. So I felt like it would be an appropriate metaphor. That's Emma Sulkowitz, the Columbia University student on Democracy Now! She was just invited by New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand to be her guest at the State of the Union address. Can you talk about how uh, these women who feel that their uh, complaints, that their allegations of rape and sexual assault are not being taken seriously by administrations, are taking action. They're building a movement in this country. 
it is incredible what they've accomplished, what, uh, uh, what young women like Emma and, and the, Annie and Andrea in our film. I mean, they, in two years, this has gone from something that nobody talked about to that something that's on the front pages daily. And, but I, I just, I just want to say that they, that's just the beginning. It's really up to all of us, you know, parents, teachers, faculty, trustees, everyone to solve this problem because it's been going on for decades. Now scores of universities, colleges across the country are being investigated? Yeah, I think uh, we now have uh, up to 95 schools are being investigated for Title IX violations. And, uh, you know, those investigations take a long, long time. I mean, uh, and, and so far, um, I mean, we, I applaud the Department of Education for taking this on, but uh, it's, the, the schools themselves should not wait to be investigated. They should be solving this problem themselves before this ever happens. As we wrap up, um, you did Invisible War to tremendous acclaim, and it has really begun a movement in this country to deal with sexual assault in the military. And the big move, especially in Congress, is to have these investigations taken out of the chain of command, because so often they're involved either with the cover-up or perhaps even involved. Now, with this film, The Hunting Ground, you're talking about assaults on college campuses. Is there a similar move in the movement that's growing around the country to, in a sense, take the investigation out of the chain of command as well, um, out of the power of the university that's protecting its brand? Yeah, there has been. I mean, one of the solutions that people have come up with is have independent bodies investigate these crimes that don't answer to the university itself so that you take out that inherent bias and that would make just ensure a fairer system, whatever the outcome is. Um, and so that is something that, that many people are pushing and suggesting and one of the things that we recommend. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently-owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com to shop at just one of the major companies with the insatiable profit incentive to help perpetuate the destructive paradigm of overconsumption and exploitative capital. Better yet, go ahead and click through to the Amazon site that serves your country just once and then bookmark it to use every time you shop, which should be as rarely as possible. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumerism altogether or at least consuming in a subversive way. Content warning for rape, sexual assault, and, and specifically the word rape, which is the key aspect here uh, of this study. So studies like this have uh, this is this is a new thing, but um, it, it's it's calling on research from from the 80s, where there was a study that was published called Violence and Gender, and these researchers found that if you use language that is like less direct, like that does not use the word rape, both men and women would be more more likely to identify experiences they had had. So, for example, if you said, have you ever coerced someone uh, into having sex by holding them down, more men would say yes than if you said, have you ever raped someone? Uh, and more uh, women would say, if you said, have this has it ever happened to you, more women would say yes if it was coerced as opposed to if you said raped. 
so yeah, so these researchers were like, you know, what's up with this? Uh-huh. Um, and so yeah, so they interviewed these uh, college uh, men and and um, controlled for this by asking. So yeah, I'll just I'll read the results. Um, so almost a third of men. 31% said that in a consequence-free situation, they'd force a woman to have sexual intercourse. 30% of men wow. said that if there was no consequences, yes, they would force a woman to have sexual intercourse. Unless anyone think that consequence-free context is some sort of abstract male utopian thing, that's not true. There are right. all kinds of um, environments where... Um, men often correctly perceive that that there are no consequences right. for sexual assault and rape. Right. So this is not this is not like well that could never happen. <laughs> right. 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 And and yeah. In fact, I feel like that is the key. Like, do you think that there will be a consequence for this or yeah. not? That is the turning point in that question. If if it was consequence free, would you do this? Thirty percent of men said yes. Only thirteen percent said they would rape a woman. Which still, I mean, right. first of all, that's more than one in 10. Good God. Uh, holy shit. But raping a woman and forcing someone to have forcing a woman to have sex with you. Same thing. Yeah. Same thing. So that's interesting. Yeah. That that what is a almost 20 percent difference like that. Yeah. The 20 point divide. The, the difference between the two is is really astounding because. Theoretically, if we if we didn't if we lived in a in a society that actually understood what rape is, that number would be the same. Exactly, and that's the key here. So this is this is from a New York Magazine story called "Lots of Men Don't Think Rape Is Rape." Um, and I'm just is it all right if I just read a little bit more? From yeah, it? yeah, by all means. So the authors write, setting aside the fact that it's terrifying that a full third of random co- group of college men would admit to this, uh, the 20 point divide is still weird, even if it does reflect what's observed in previous research. At the end of the day, two groups uh, the two groups are saying the same thing. So continuing, uh, so how did those who endorsed rape differ from those who only endorsed forcible intercourse? And only is in quotes. Yeah. Edwards and her team found that the men who endorsed rape when the term was used had higher hostility towards women and more callous attitudes about sex. This might matter from a prevention standpoint. The researchers think that Quote, men who endorse using force to obtain intercourse on survey items but deny rape on the same may not uh, experience a hostile uh, affect in response to to women, but might have uh, dispositions more in line with benevolent sexism. Wait, so can you help me break that down? Yeah. It's a little bit uh, hard to understand on the fly. Sorry. So uh, in other words, the men who said, no, I wouldn't rape someone, but I would force them to have sex with me the one-third yeah yeah are more likely to not have like actively negative attitudes towards women okay are more like i mean paraphrasing here extrapolating but maybe nice guys or at least guys who would be like i don't hate women Uh but guys who wouldn't say like all women are bitches right Right. Whatever. But but as they say, might have um, more kind of benevolent sexism. Might be might be sexists who don't really identify as sexists. Women need to be saved. Uh huh. Damsel in distress. Right. I need to save the princess, kind of thing. Right. Uh, whereas men who said, you know, affirmatively, yes, I would rape someone. Again, fucking terrifying that that's thirteen percent of men of who are surveyed. But the men who said, yes, I would rape someone, had actively hostile points of view towards women. Those men. I mean. I guess not surprisingly, <laughs> those men hate women, and 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 say yes, I hate women, have 
explicitly and clear, non-ambiguous <laughs> hostility towards women. Whereas the men who said, I wouldn't rape somebody, but I would force them to have sex with me, don't have clear, uh, as clear hostility or as, as, um, as kind of direct or whatever hostility towards women. They're not like clearly frothing at the mouth or something. Right. Right. So, so to continue a little bit from, um, from the New York Magazine story, in other words, not all potential rapists go around talking about how much they hate women. And this suggests there is no one size fits all approach to sexual assault prevention. You know, so this, right. So, so obviously the 30% of men who said that they would force somebody to have sex with them, those guys still are potential rapists, right? Uh-huh. Um, you know, and this is, I feel like this is part of, this is a very important part of, you know, discussing rape culture and something that a lot of feminists have brought up. A lot of men who might be rapists might not think that they are rapists, right? Or might not uh-huh. think that what they're doing, obviously those, those guys, those 30% of guys, they don't think that forcing somebody to have sex with them is rape. I wonder what they think rape is. Yeah, right. I, I mean, I, I, is I, it just like a guy in an alley? I, like that's what they think? I guess, or, or, you know, I guess that they might buy into a kind of, um, why can't I think of his name? Forcible rape guy. Todd Aiken? Todd Aiken. They might buy into a like, well, there's violent, quote unquote, violent rape or quote unquote, uh-huh. forcible rape. That's what rape is. It's violent or forcible. A lack of consent doesn't uh-huh. qualify or some people who, who think that there's, you know that that it's that there's this giant you know spectrum or this gray area or whatever you know bullshit way you want to think about it. There was uh, there's a, a Law and Order SVU that um, ha- has a sort of like rip from the headlines, uh-huh. uh, and one of the um, one of the plot points is that this uh, expert witness talks about legitimate rape uh-huh. and about how women have a way of shutting that whole thing down. Oh yeah. And the uh, the DA really gets him good, <laughs> so it's a sort of like vicarious, you know. As a as a viewer, you get to be like, "Yay, <laughs> take that jackass down a peg." But I mean, you know, and this is, I, I, it's. I feel like after the Todd Aiken thing, I, I don't know. I mean. I would like to think that after a story that was as big as Todd Aiken, and as much conversation there was after that, as much as much public rejection as there was to the idea that there's something called forcible rape that's different, that that right, that is that that you're qualifying these things that all rape isn't forcible. I am, I, I am, I, maybe I shouldn't be, but I am surprised that there are college men in the United States who are alive and breathing and conscious who who actually think that forcing someone to have sex isn't rape. I'm actually quite... I expect better of them. Yeah. I Maybe think that's I a should. mistake. Yeah. <laughs> I think clearly what, clearly what this survey is telling us is that expecting better might be hoping for too much right now. Right. I mean, right. So what this survey tells us, I think, is that we need to really lower the bar when it comes to what we think. I, I mean, it's like, I really, I don't, I don't identify as like a misandrist. Like, I don't think that men are like simple minded cavemen, you know. You know again, really <laughs> couldn't be more wrong. <laughs> We're terrible. <laughs> but like a fucking third of guys... A, would rape someone, and B, don't think it's rape? I mean, a third? Good God. So, so yeah, I mean, so, so I guess what the, what the, you know, with this information, I guess we have to think about, well, 
what the fuck do we do with this? Which is also why I think that it's so important when, you know, people say, don't tell women not to get raped, tell men not to rape. And everyone's like, oh, well, it's a fantasy world. Why would you ever say that? And like, this shows how important that is. Men, mm-hmm. that men, A, would rape someone and B, might not even know that it's rape. So th- oh, yeah, or might tell themselves that it's not right, right. Um, yeah, which is also something like yeah, what's with those men? Right, that's a whole another question. Do those men really not think it's rape? Like yeah. really, really not think it's rape, or are they just lying to themselves or what? Yeah, is there some sort of like subconscious self-deception going on there, right. or or is it? Yeah, interesting. One of the things that this reminds me of is uh, I feel like somebody recently went back and watched a bunch of like. 80s movies and um, talked about how horrifying, you know, there is it. Arthur Chu wrote about this in one of his amazing essays, and it's um, Revenge of the Nerds. Right. Where the guy, like, tricks, it's Halloween or something, and people are wearing masks, and he tricks a woman into having sex with him. And, And Arthur Chu is like, oh, wow, that's rape. And that's like, a bunch of people's favorite movie and everyone loves that because it's like this victory for the nerd and there was a i think there was another revenge of the nerds where like one of the final scenes is this young woman is passed out and the guy's like taking her away and his buddies are like have fun oh my god do you remember that i feel like that was that was part of that essay or you know so there's just all these examples from you know fairly recent pop culture and still very much beloved movies right that you know have all of these just terrible, terrible lessons in them that, I don't know, I'm just like really thinking about about people who would make movies like that and not think that there's anything wrong with it or right. watch movies like that and not think there's anything wrong with with that. And, and, you know, so I think that that's just, this exists in the same world as, as that. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think part of why it's it's such... It's such an important point to say we need to teach men about what rape is and we need yeah. to teach them, you know, why you don't do it. And, and what what affirmative consent is. Right, right. You know, and and to the extent that maybe 13% of men are actually, you know, violent people who hate women and actually would choose knowingly to hurt them, I'm not exactly sure what level of intervention or education, what the approach for, for them should be. Obviously yeah. something, but that is, a, I think, a harder question. Whereas presumably these 30% of people who would rape some, but someone but wouldn't think it's rape, I, I think slash hope, maybe naively or optimistically, that the answer there is education, right? Yeah, they can be reached, yes, presumably. Presumably. So, so yeah, you know, remember when uh, Zerlina Maxwell went on, I think it was, I can't remember, maybe it was Hannity, I think, it may have been Fox News, and was like, teach men not to rape, and and, and I can't remember if it was Hannity now, but they were just like, whoa, my yeah. God, are you out of your mind? And and it's uh, that's obviously what this research shows is that's obviously what needs to happen. It's not it's not oh, there's random sociopaths in the world that just can't be stopped. Mm-hmm. It's like there are there are <laughs> here is a group of men that you can start with, <laughs> sit them down, get an affirmative consent educator, and fucking teach them.
Okay, everybody, thanks a lot for joining us on KMOX. Charlie Brennan on The Voice of St. Louis. Well, I want to ask you, everybody, about uh, three women who were convicted of murder. They were all sentenced to life in prison for killing their husbands or having their husbands killed. There were allegations that the women had been beaten by their husbands. If you're beaten by your husband, does that give you license to kill him? Hello, Jan, you're on KMOX. Hi, I'm just calling to say that I, I don't feel that domestic violence is a reason to kill your spouse. You know, I don't think you should stick around. Don, take it away. What's the difference between you walking down the street and being mugged and you killed him versus a woman who was beaten by her, by her husband? It's not as if they were in a fight and in self-defense, she got the kitchen butcher knife and killed the guy. I don't think the women should go to jail. It's nobody knows how it is. They hired hitmen and they had their husband off, mafia style. Why didn't they just leave as opposed to murdering them? Um, hi. I have been beaten by my husband and it's not that easy to just get out. It is not easy. And what prevents you from getting the heck out of there? I love him. I would be 82 years old before I would go see the pro board. And I came in when I was 33 years old, I came in. I met my husband many years ago when I was young. We was raised up together. So I was 14 years old when I got married. I was still a child. I was married about two years before the abuse started. Then it was just mental. I was fat. I was ugly. You're a whore like your mother. And I guess at first I thought maybe that's the way marriage is supposed to be. I would come home from work and uh, he'd be waiting for me. And I'd fix him something to eat. Well, it wasn't good enough. He would hit me and throw that on the floor. Our daughter, she had major back surgery. And she was in a body cast. Well, she didn't get up off the divan fast enough for him. He whipped her with the belt. Life there just was not good. It was like being in prison. We did our best to protect each other. Because we knew that if one of us didn't cover our backs, we paid for it. I can't even explain how down he had me. I didn't even know who I was. I wanted to show you the letter that your great-grandson wrote to me. It says, Dear guy who sets women free, Hi, I'm Lance Smith, and I'm Carlene's great-grandson, and she's been in there long enough. She has been in there my mom's whole life and my whole life. She needs to see more of the outside world. She needs to get out to, so she can live the rest of her life with her family, she hardly knows. Sincerely, Lance. He drives these officers crazy. <laughs> How many grandkids do you have now? I've got seven grandkids and nine great-grandkids. I've raised them 
in the visiting area. I'm trying. Some days it's awfully hard. When you kill somebody, you have to pay a price. On the other hand, the sentences these people got were way disproportionate to their um, culpability. I received life without possibility of parole for 50 years. A lot of these women suffer from the fact that they don't fit our image of domestic violence. He said if um, he couldn't have me, nobody could have me, and he meant it. The guy is not there to present his side of the story. She was going to die that day. The reason she didn't die that day is because she pulled the trigger. How horrible to have to live a life like that and have everybody around you not say a word about it until it was too late. The board has denied parole to three women who claim they were driven to murder their husbands by lives filled with domestic abuse. They were told by their attorneys not to bring up the abuse that they had suffered because that would be seen as motive. He said, you either tell me where she's at or I'm going to go kill. It's a theory of learned helplessness. If you shoot someone, you're not helpless. If you prove battered woman syndrome and don't prove self-defense, you're guilty of all charges. Women will talk about certain moments where all of a sudden everything that they've been pushing away comes into focus. They were all sentenced to life in prison for killing their husbands. If you're beaten by your husband, does that give you license to kill them? It's just unlike anything I've ever experienced as a lawyer. You just feel completely in the dark. I want to go back out there and be somebody. Be the person that I was before all this happened. I think the parole board is looking for the perfect victim, and I think the problem is that they will never find it. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, fighting the patriarchy with film. Survivors of rape and intimate partner violence, regardless of gender, share a fear of coming forward and of not being believed. Female survivors fearing being called a slut, that's the patriarchy. Male survivors fearing being called weak or looked down on, that's also the patriarchy. Also, deeply rooted in the patriarchy that rules our culture and our institutions is a fundamental skepticism of anyone who comes forward to say they've been violated. We interrogate rape victims as they report and when they take the witness stand. We berate domestic violence victims with shaming questions like, well, why didn't you just leave? 
A pair of documentaries seeks to put human faces out in front of the statistics in order to move the needle on the culture of blame. The subjects of The Perfect Victim and The Hunting Ground, two films we heard highlighted in today's show, recount their stories in compelling fashion, demanding that viewers help address stigma and demand change to the legal hurdles that keep justice out of their reach. The Hunting Ground in theaters now is an indictment on college campus rape culture and the near-complete refusal of administrators to address the issue or punish offenders. You can visit thehuntinggroundfilm.com for show listings and to use the Take Action tab to get involved. Their advocate action takes 30 seconds and sends your representatives in Congress a note urging them to support the Campus Accountability and Safety Act. The new film, The Perfect Victim, lays out the fallacy of the title through the stories of Shirley, Charlene, Tanya, and Ruby, four women serving a collective 85 years in Missouri State Prison for killing their abusive husbands. Each was advised not to tell their stories of mitigating circumstances at trial, and each is hoping new counsel will help them find a path to justice. Beginning April 15th, the World Channel, which you can find at worldchannel.org, will be showing the film The Perfect Victim for free, and you'll also be able to find it on Amazon Prime. You can find more information and get involved through the Take Action tab at theperfectvictim.com. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If providing a path to justice for victims of assault and abuse matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the hunting ground and the perfect victim via social media so that others in your network Work can get involved. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage with action? After a year of passionate romance with a handsome, charismatic man, I was stunned when he began to abuse me. I believed he was lashing out because he was in pain and needed help. I believed my compassion could restore him and our relationship. My empathy was used against me. I was terrified of him and ashamed I was in this position. What bound me to him was my desire to heal him. My compassion was incomplete because it did not include me. When he threatened to kill me, I knew I had to escape. I revealed the truth to my mom and she encouraged me to seek help at a local domestic violence shelter. This conversation saved my life. Authentic love does not devalue another human being. Authentic love does not silence, shame, or abuse. If you are in a relationship with someone who does not honor and respect you, I want you to know that you are worthy of love. Please reach out for help. Your voice will save you. Let it extend into the night. Let it part the darkness. Let it set you free to know who you truly are. 
valuable, beautiful, loved. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Unfortunately, I don't have any voicemails for you today, and I will get to why in just a minute. But first, I want to let you know that coming up this Sunday, April 12th, is the beginning of International Anti-Street Harassment Week. You can get the details at stopstreetharassment.org. So if after this episode and dealing with all the systemic causes and fallouts of rape culture and intimate partner violence, and you watched both documentaries we told you about and you followed through on the activism on both of those topics already, and you're like, what's next? Give me something more to do. Uh, Check out stopstreetharassment.org. It's a good time to uh, show solidarity with the anti-street harassment movement. Now, we don't have voicemails today because I can't get them. This is a technical difficulty that is like the cherry on top of the shitstorm of a week I've had. Uh, the last episode I put out was a rerun. I, I put a note at the beginning explaining that my girlfriend had gone into the hospital uh, it turns out that she had a little bit of uh, minor surgery on the day that I would have normally been making a show, so I think that was a good call on uh, not working that day. She ended up being in the hospital for five days. We thought for a minute she was going to get out on the fourth day. It turns out, no, the pain was too bad, so a lot of the time spent there was for you know pain mitigation. On the fifth day, so you know, like my my week was basically. You know, I, I, luckily we stay, you know, we live close enough to the hospital that I came home and slept in a real bed instead of a chair each night. And so each morning I'd get up, I'd leave the house between like 8.30 and 9.30, go to the hospital, stay there until 10 or 11, come home, repeat the next day. And so finally on the fifth day, the last day she was in there, I, I was doing my normal routine. I was getting out of the house early. I had my bike in hand. I'm going out the door and I hurt my back. Like it's just sort of an awkward movement getting the bike out the door and then getting myself out the door. And as I step out, my lower back seized sort of. And amazingly, I could still ride because it turned out sort of that, that bent over position was okay. You know, that didn't hurt. It's just every other conceivable position that hurts. So. The day that she's released from the hospital, you know, post-surgery and, you know, drugged up and everything. And so, like, she's got her post-surgery hobble and I've got my uh, seized back limp and sort of twisted, awkward uh, gait that, like, you know, she's 30, I'm 31. We looked like an 85-year-old couple. That's that's how, uh, that's how we were a couple of days ago. And... Um, so then yesterday, you know, we're back home. It's not like things are back to normal. Things are, you know, we're just lying around the house in pain for the most part. But it was a lovely day outside. Just just lovely. So we were, you know, annoyed that we're missing the uh, the, the lovely day. 
So, you know, we, we go around, at least we can open the windows, get a little cross breeze in, something like that. So I go in, in, into one of our rooms and, you know, we live in a, like an apartment building with the, the big push up windows are kind of heavy. And so with my back not doing well, I have to like sort of brace myself. I'm leaning heavily against the window frame with one hand so that I can lift the window up with the other. And it turns out I wasn't just leaning against the frame. My hand was actually in the path of the window, uh, which I didn't realize until I had about an inch and a half gash in the middle of my palm. And so that happened yesterday. And then today, uh, it was time to make a show again. And so I'm sitting here in terrible pain in my back. My hand actually, it healed up nicely. It was a nice clean slice. So, uh, so luckily that, uh, that, that cleaned up nicely, but just understand that when I had technical difficulties today, I wasn't surprised. So no voicemails today, but keep them coming. Uh, hopefully one day I'll, I'll be able to access them. They, they come, the voicemail system is hooked up to my website the, you know, people call, they leave a message, they show up in the website. I can see that they're there. I got like a dozen of them waiting for me. Uh, I, you know, I click the button to download and nothing happens. So I'm in touch with the tech people. Hopefully in a couple of days, uh, they will be free. Once again, I'll be able to download those files, put them in the show and so on. But that's where we are now. Uh, so I figured might as well use this time to, uh, regale you with my week of, just a fucking comedy of errors. I hope you enjoyed it more than we did, which is uh, almost impossible not to have. Uh, but that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing Stories and forget who it is we're